Second Kings chapter 17, verses 1 to 23 is our text. Second Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 23. This is God's inspired and infallible word. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. And Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. And the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor on the river of Gozan in the cities of the Medes. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced." The sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places, as the nations did which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. They served the idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments. My statutes according to the law which I commanded to your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God 
and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practice divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nabat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them. Until the the Lord removed Israel from his sight, as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. The reading of God's holy word. Be seated and let's pray together for his blessing. O Lord, God of heaven, we look to you and to your word and to your spirit, and we ask, O Father, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your holy word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church through the example of our fathers of old, Israel of old. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The sad report before us this evening reports the death of the northern kingdom of Israel. The spirit-inspired king's narrator functions here as a coroner whose role it is to determine the time of death and the cause of death. He conducts an autopsy on the lifeless body of Israel and hands down his official ruling. The writer sums up the death of Israel in the words of verses 5 and 6. The king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. But the kingdom of Israel didn't die because the Assyrians who invaded her land carried them away into captivity. She had already died before they arrived. 
The Assyrians were merely the pallbearers who carried the body away. Israel's death was due to suicide. She didn't have to die. She died because she chose to die. We have observed the gradual self-poisoning of the northern kingdom of Israel since Jeroboam took the throne and introduced idolatrous worship in the life of the Israelites in the north, 1 Kings chapter 12. More recently, in 2 Kings chapter 15's report of the violent succession of wicked kings to Israel's throne, uh, we saw the continual degradation of uh, the, the nation of Israel. Now, chapter 17 chronicles her demise. In the text before us, we have the testimony of the ability, of the power of idolatry born out of infatuation with the world to kill nations, churches, and individuals. We'll look at two things this evening, the time of Israel's death and the causes of Israel's death. The first place, the time of Israel's death. These verses place the official time of Israel's death during the reign of Hosea, who came to the throne after assassinating the previous king of Israel, Pekah, chapter 15, verse 30. By this time, a deathly pallor hang, uh, had been hanging over uh, the northern kingdom. But two things stand out in particular in the brief summary of verses 1 through 6. The first is the continuing weakness of Israel's leaders. Hosea, the last king of Israel, is seen in less than flattering terms. In verse 2, we're told that he wasn't bad as the kings of Israel who were before him, but clearly he didn't do anything to remedy their failures and still did evil in the sight of the Lord. Hosea was also politically inept. It's likely that he came to the throne as a vassal of uh, the Assyrians and continued in this relationship until he decided to withhold the tribute money uh, from them and, and foolishly determined to form an alliance with So, king of Egypt. This fatal miscalculation moved Shalmaneser, Tiglath, Pelezer's successor in Assyria to imprison Hosea and to besiege the city of, of Samaria, uh, verse 4, which led to the death of his kingdom. A further irony is that Hosea is another form of Joshua and means savior. This hapless man was no savior, but the last of a dying and discredited line of kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. Second element that stands out here is 
the terrifying power of the Assyrians who invaded, conquered, and deported Israel. And yet, as we'll see in chapter 19, verses 25 to 28, behind the Assyrian invasion is a greater power, Jehovah, the king of the nations. God is using Assyria to punish his people Israel, but they too will experience his judgment. That's for the future. At the moment, the coroner's report of Israel's death is as bleak as it gets. Secondly, the causes of Israel's death. The explanation of Israel's death is, uh, rather, the, 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 the explanation for their death, the, the causes of their death, is much fuller than the report of the time of death. This is important because it would be too easy for us to get the impression that Israel died because of weak leadership, a badly governed kingdom, succumbing to a ruthless military machine led by powerful warlords. On a human level, that's what happened. But that's not the ultimate reason for Israel's demise. Israel's death stemmed from their rejection of a gracious God who had rescued them centuries before from Pharaoh of Egypt, verse 7. From this account of Israel's death, we can isolate three major reasons, three major causes for their death. We do well to study these because they're still at work today, destroying nations, churches, and individuals. In the first place, disobedience to God's word. Verses 7 to 12 and 16 to 17. The writer gives us a long and depressing list of Israel's sins against God. They feared other gods. Verse 7. They followed the evil practices of the nations God had cast out of Canaan. Verses 8 and 11, they followed the evil innovations of their own kings. Verse 8, they tried to keep their idolatry hidden from the Lord by combining it with Jehovah's worship. You remember, Jeroboam's worship was a syncretistic worship. That is, he blended the worship of false gods with the worship of the true God. And that's what Israel is said to have done here in verse 9, they erected idols in high places in all of their cities. Again, verse 9, they made use of sexually suggestive images. Verse 10, they practiced the abomination of child sacrifice. Verse 17, they practiced witchcraft and sorcery. Also in verse 17. From a quick glance at this list, it's plain that Israel's besetting sin was idolatry. Uh, whether it was the golden calves in Dan and Bethel in Jeroboam's day, 
whether it was the, the later, uh, the, the worship of, of Baal that uh, was introduced and then revived again initially uh, under Ahab and then revived again under later kings uh, in the north, uh, their besetting sin, the sin that plagued Israel, was idolatry. She gave to idols the devotion and service that belonged to God alone. God had been gracious to Israel, and yet she went after idols. The Lord had established a covenant relationship with Israel, but they rejected the covenant, verse 15. He had delivered the Israelites from bondage in the land of Egypt, verse 7. He had cast pagan nations out of the land of Canaan and given it to them, verse 8. He'd given them his law to make them different from all of the other nations around them. He'd given So many good gifts to Israel, but Israel's kings and her people with reckless disregard for God's commandments and their own well-being plunged themselves into idolatrous worship. And by their idolatry, they essentially said to God, we want to be like all the nations around us and worship many gods. You don't deserve our exclusive devotion and service. Now, idolatry hasn't died. We may not fall down before crudely car- uh, crude idols carved out of, of wood or or stone. But every time we give to something else, the allegiance that belongs to God alone, we are guilty of idolatry. We turn our backs on the blessings of God and say to him, we want to synthesize our thinking with the world's thinking. We want to adapt our thinking to cultural thinking. You don't deserve our exclusive devotion and service. Just as the threat of idolatry is still with us, so is this desire to be like the world. The truth is that some of God's people seem terrified at the very thought of being considered out of step with or behind the times. They hear about the latest beliefs concerning human sexuality or gender identity, and immediately seek to water down the Bible's teaching and bring it into line with those beliefs. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries publishes a survey called The State of Theology. In 2022, that survey revealed that 37% of American evangelicals believe that gender identity is a matter of choice. 
And 28% of them believe that the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality doesn't apply today. Those who capitulate to the world's thinking fail to realize that the very things that they're trying to synthesize with Christianity were born out of hostility towards it. The first cause of death is disobedience to God's word. Second, a refusal to heed God's warnings through his prophets, verses 13 and 14. God would have been justified in sending judgment upon Israel as soon as she began practicing disobedience. As soon as idolatry reared its ugly head in the northern kingdom. But in his tender mercy and grace, he withheld judgment. And instead, he sent prophet after prophet to warn the people about their sin of idolatry and the destruction that it would inevitably bring. These prophets sounded a wondrous note of comfort and hope. If the Israelites would only repent of their sins and return to the Lord, he would wholeheartedly forgive and restore them. We've looked at uh, this passage in Hosea uh, before in a prior King's uh, sermon. Uh, But chapter 14 is one of those passages where uh, through the prophet, God is, is extending his mercy and his grace to Israel. Return, O Israel, to the Lord, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. What, what a gracious, what a, what a merciful overture. Now, the kinds of overtures that we've, we've been reading about through 2 Kings, where God extended his gracious hand to them and invited them to repent, offered them forgiveness, free and full, if they would listen to the voice of the prophets. However, they didn't heed those warnings. The writer pointedly says uh, here in chapter 17 and verse 14, they stiffened their necks like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. Now to be stiff-necked is to be stubborn. It's to be obstinate. God's people should have humbled themselves before these warnings from the prophets, but like their fathers under Moses, the generations 
during the period of the kings had stubbornly refused to heed God's warning. And God had made it clear under Moses in his prophetic ministry that he hadn't given them the promised land because of their righteousness. For, he said, you are a stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy 9, verse 6. Remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai, the people made molten images for themselves. And uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I've seen this people indeed. It is a stiff-necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. Deuteronomy 9, 13 and 14. No one ever experiences calamity. No one ever experiences the disaster of God's judgment without stubbornly rebelling against or ignoring God's word that so clearly warns against refusing to heed his warnings. Disobedience to God's word, refusal to heed God's warnings through his prophets. Third, God's faithfulness to his own word. Now, that may uh, surprise us uh, when, we, uh, when we hear this. The writer states this emphatically in verse 23 of our text. He says, The Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria this day. God judged Israel. Israel was judged because he had declared that if they went after other gods, he would judge them. And so he fulfills his word. Long before God sent the latter prophets, the Lord had warned Israel about idolatry through um, Moses' prophetic ministry, through whom God had dealt with this issue repeatedly. Uh, one example is in, in Deuteronomy eleven sixteen: Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Now, the Lord specifically, uh, later in Deuteronomy, warned Israel that this would lead to captivity. When God's people in the northern kingdom of Israel adamantly refused to heed the warnings of both Deuteronomy and the prophets that the Lord had sent to, him, uh, to them, the, the Lord did exactly what he said he was going to do. The Assyrians came in, they devastated the land of Israel, and they took Israel's citizens captive. And the Lord describes this captivity as a way of removing his people from his sight. He wanted them out of his sight because of their recklessness and disobedience, because of their stubborn obstinance in refusing to heed his warnings, even the warnings of judgment in his own word. Captivity 
was a most fitting judgment. Israel had followed the ways of the very pagan nations that God had used Israel to drive out of Canaan. And now God uses a pagan nation to drive Israel herself out of the land. Through this judgment, God essentially said to Israel, you cannot be partially like the nations. You must be totally like them. If you insist on sharing their sins, you must also experience their judgments. God, in his word, promises good for those who obey him, as as well as the warning of calamity for those who refuse to obey. The same faithfulness that brought disaster upon Israel for her sin, the same faithfulness of God was now a comfort to the original readers of Kings. Those original readers were the very ones who were experiencing that captivity. But they had this promise from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. So it shall be when all of these things shall have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. And you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. What a wondrous promise to God's people. What a wondrous promise this was for God's people in captivity to reflect back upon uh, that if if, uh, they would again seek the Lord their God, that he would restore him. The God who had been faithful to his word in bringing judgment could be counted on to be faithful to his promise to restore them from captivity as well. We should pay close attention to God's warnings, but we should also pay close attention to God's promises to those who repent. This faithful God speaks to us today and promises eternal salvation through the work of his Son, Jesus Christ. But he also firmly pronounces eternal destruction on all those who reject Christ, those who come to Christ by faith and submit to the lordship of Jesus 
may rest assured that God will honor his promise to forgive them and restore them to himself. But if you refuse to come to Christ, you may be sure that God will honor his commitment to judge you. God's faithfulness will either be a comfort to you or a terror to you. It all depends on whether you obey his word and heed his warnings. We encounter a gravestone in the 17th chapter of 2 Kings. The epitaph reads, Here lies Israel. She died of disobedience and a stiff neck. This stone marks Israel's grave, but it also stands as a lasting monument to the, the, the power of idolatry born out of an infatuation with the world to kill kingdoms, to kill nations, to kill churches, to kill individuals. Now let us pay careful attention to this weighty warning to God's people today. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, that such things as these that took place in the kingdom of northern Israel, in God's people of old, happened as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Listen to Paul's warning to God's people in the church at Corinth and his warning to God's people today to avoid Israel's deadly mistakes. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 14. Therefore, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. Our gracious and merciful God, the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth, we look to you, O Lord, and we believe that you will honor your promise to bless those who will submit themselves to Christ and his lordship and to reconcile them to yourself through the blood of the Savior. We also believe, O oh Lord, the terrible truth that you'll honor your commitment to judgment too. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us not to ignore ancient history, even the ancient history of the kings, but that you, O oh Lord, would instill in us a godly fear of your commands, a godly fear, O oh Lord, of the warnings that you've issued to your people, the ones you gave through Moses, and the, one you gave, uh, the ones you gave through uh, the latter prophets in uh, the time of the king's Lord, teach us 
to be terrified of your judgment. Teach us to heed the warnings you give to us concerning sin. Keep us from arrogance, believing that we, uh, we could never do such and such a thing. Let us take heed, O Lord, so that we don't fall. Teach us, O God, to flee from all of the idolatrous practices of our hearts. Lord, you know our sins. You know our besetting sins. You know, O Lord, you you see it all. And we ask, O Father, that you'd make us a holy people unto yourself. Hear us as we plead your promises of grace before you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.